Good evening, everyone. My name is Marla, and I am a partner here at Mercy View. Tonight, I'm reading from Luke 19, 1 through 9. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the house of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I have approached the work of being a pastor, uh, one of the things that I have decided to spend most of my time doing out in the community uh, is to put myself in places where I can connect with people naturally. Um, Most of that time, uh, most of you know this, is spent in coffee shops. And one of the main reasons that I do that is because as a pastor, I have to be really intentional, like super intentional, to place myself in places where there are people that I don't know, or most of the people there I don't know, especially those that may be far from God, or I won't be in the way of what Jacob was just talking about, in the way of the opportunities that God may be providing for me to be connecting with those folks and sharing the good news of the gospel with them in relationship. Recently... Uh, at my go-to coffee joint, uh, I I struck up a conversation with someone that we'll just call Tom. This is always a funny thing when you're telling an illustration about someone, and I want to make sure we don't have any Toms here. I don't think we do, so if your name is Tom, I'm not talking about you, okay? Um, But Tom, uh, it was a good dude. I've seen him around quite a bit, very um, business-oriented guy, uh, very serious, getting work done, uh, and... uh, you know, we, we kind of were around each other for a while, but one day we struck up a conversation recently and uh, asked him, you know, what does he do for a living? He works in oil and gas. Big surprise there. And then he, he asked me, what do you do for a living? Now, there was a time where I thought I would be really cute and tell people that I was, uh, you know, a, a leader of a non-for-profit, you know, or, or anyways, I, was tr- I would try to sort of hide behind some title so that I wouldn't totally give away what I did just in case they thought that that wasn't cool or not. But the reality was is that none of that ever really worked for me and and I began to find myself telling people what I actually did, like what my title was. I'm a pastor at a church here uh, in Tulsa. Interestingly, one of the things that I began to discover is that even in a city like Tulsa, um, there is still a fair amount of respect and and weight that comes uh, with that title, and most people have been super like nice about it, not not uh, weirded out by it. And actually, as I told my friend Tom this, he he said, "Man, I I would love to hear more about what you do and what you you know your church. Like, let's get together and, and hang out." 
it actually happened so quickly that uh, I didn't realize that I was getting ready to hang out with someone that, that I, by all accounts, that I, as far as I could tell, was far from the Lord. The Lord had provided something really quickly in this moment, and I had to kind of get my heart and mind ready for our next time together. And, and what we said was, hey, uh, let's exchange numbers. I'll text you uh, for a time for us to get together, and we'll, we'll make this happen. And so uh, a few days later, I, I texted him, and we made a date for like the next week at this coffee shop and uh, was looking forward to it. The day of, praying up, getting ready for that meeting, and I get a text from Tom, and he says, hey, man, I can't meet today. I said, no problem, man, that's fine. Like, let's find another time to do that. And he said, well, let's push it ahead to next week. And um, I said, sure, that's fine. And so we made a plan to get together the next week. The same thing happened that week, and it happened the next week, and the next week. After about four times... I began to get this, this feeling that Tom really wasn't actually interested in meeting with me. And I began to really like think about, did I say something that offended him? Did, he, did, did I do something that caused him to not want to hang out with me? And here's the really awkward part is in between all of those texts and setting up dates and canceled meetings, I saw him there almost every day. So it was very awkward and challenging to try to navigate for me personally because I thought, man, I must have said something or done something that he's just not really that interested in in hanging out with me. I began to really think about this question, um, God, why would you provide this opportunity seemingly and then let it fall through, right? You know how much God I care about the mission that you have sent me on. You know that I go to this coffee shop really because I need to put myself in the way of people that may be far from God to be able to share my life with them and and ultimately hopefully share the gospel with them. And here we are, God. That opportunity seems to not be something that's going to happen. And I'm still seeing Tom almost every day at this place. I wonder if you've ever experienced anything like that ever risk the investment of maybe even more time and energy and resources than I did with Tom, and really, after it all, it just sort of falls flat. I wonder if you've ever wanted to give up after experiencing something like that on this part of the Christian life. You just heard Jacob talk about the fear and the the nervousness that kind of bubbles up in us as we engage with people and Think about the opportunity that God might be providing for evangelism or, or just serving them in some way to show them the, the love of Jesus, and they seem to resist that and reject that, and you think, man, what, God, what is this about, right? And one of the things that God taught me in that and is continuing to teach me is there is something about God's mission that... Um, is also meant for my sanctification. And what I mean by that is God's mission is a lot like the ebb and flow of what I experienced with my friend Tom. And I I began to learn this, and again, I'm continuing to learn it, but what if those times of real promise that God might be bringing about, and then sometimes the disappointment in mission is actually a part of our sanctification. What does it look like to stay faithful and obedient in sharing our lives with, with folks 
with the hope that we can ultimately share the story of God with them. But ultimately know that it's not in our hands. No matter how much time we invest, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much resources we may give away, there may come a time where that particular situation may fall flat. And, and, and how do we engage and continue to engage in God's mission when that kind of thing happens? I'm learning and I'm continuing to learn that a lot of what God does in his mission in my own life, it's, it's really to, to make it less about me and more about him. Maybe he's doing something in me, in his mission that he's given me, that I would be really, I should do well to not neglect. And so that's what we want to talk about in a, in a way over the next few weeks here at Mercy View. Tonight, we are beginning a new series. Um, this is our last sermon series at Memorial Baptist, and it's one that we've actually felt led in, in the, the recent weeks to call an audible on. We were going to go in a different direction, but as we thought about our move to Wilson and thought about the kind of things that God is calling us to as a church, uh, one of the things that we are convicted about is just the long-standing challenges we've had as a church to be truly a missional church. It's one of our three values. We desire to see mission play itself out in the ways that we, we, we love and serve others and connect with people in, in, in places where we live, our neighborhoods, where we work, which is a major mission field for, for all of us, and also the places, I like to say it this way, where we play. And, and we have felt a conviction that we need to, before we head to Wilson, and again, it's not that we haven't been on mission, but we need to think critically about what God is calling us to in this great mission he's given us in the world. I don't know if you've thought of it this way, but, but God places us in strategic places for his work, right? He places us in neighborhoods. He places us in places of work. He, he places uh, us in spots where we uh, engage in our hobbies and things that we enjoy doing to relax, but we also recognize that, and many of you have been a part of this in other parts of the world, that sometimes God sends us to places that we ne wouldn't have necessarily chosen on our own to also engage in God's mission in the world. But whether it's here or there, this is one of the values that we have as a church. And I know most, if not all of you would affirm it, but we would also say we really struggle with living this out faithfully. I do. I know you do too because you've told me you do. So we're going to take the next few weeks to, in a series entitled Go and Tell, lean into that struggle. And I think God has something that he desires to shape and to form us in in the weeks to come. The struggle is real. And it's good for us to be honest about that, acknowledge that. But the good news is that you and I have not been left to our own devices in the mission that God has called us to. There is good news for us as we engage in God's mission. And this series is intended to help us all be formed into the kind of ambassadors that God intends to use in that great mission in the world. And so tonight, as we ease into this series, I want to invite you to see three things from our passage that we just looked at there in Luke 19, and it's this. First, 
Engaging in mission requires courageous initiative. Engaging in mission requires courageous initiative. But second, engaging in mission requires proper dignity. Proper dignity. And third, engaging in mission requires both gospel witness and gospel truth. Gospel witness and gospel truth. So if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. That's where we're going to be tonight uh, for our entire time. In fact, um, in the gospel of Luke, the story that you heard Marla read earlier, uh, this is the last recorded ministry interaction that Jesus makes with someone for the purpose of of, uh, sharing the gospel before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which if you know what that is about, that is the beginning of what we know uh, as Holy Week or the Passion Week that culminates in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So this is at the very end of the earthly ministry of Jesus. That's where we come into this story. And so if you would look with me, verse 1, because what we see as we enter our story tonight is that Jesus is coming into a city that if you grew up in the church, this city is going to be very familiar, the city of Jericho. Yes, the the city that the walls came a-tumbling down in, all right? He's coming into Jericho, passing through Jericho, and that is the context for our our story. And in verse 2, we're introduced to our leading man in our story. Look there, it says this, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, the city of Jericho was a very important city at this time. Jericho was a major toll collection point for goods that were passing through that area from the east to the west. It was one of the major cities that those goods passed through. And that's why Zacchaeus actually lived in Jericho because he worked for the Roman government. And what he did for the Roman government was take taxes so that the Roman government could do their their business. At this time, the Romans were the occupying army and they were the oppressors of the Jewish people. And these tax collectors that worked for the Roman government were actually not paid by the Roman government. So in order for them to make a living, as they collected taxes with others, they collected more than they needed to for their own salary. Now, if you can imagine this, if you were someone who's paying taxes and you know what those taxes are and this tax collector comes along and he he asks for more than what you owe so that he can have a salary, you're not going to really like that tax collector very much. In fact, you might get to a place where you despise that tax collector. And that was Zacchaeus's reality. He did this with enough people in this particular part of the world. He was absolutely despised by everyone that he would have been working with. The tax collectors were abusing their power. Zacchaeus was absolutely collecting way more than he needed to. And because of this, Zacchaeus and those in the profession of tax collecting at this time were hated. So Zacchaeus, who was actually the head of Jericho's tax collection district, that's why he's called in our passage the chief tax collector. He was like really, really rich because of it. So Zacchaeus was 
not only a man of, of great wealth, but because of his wealth, he was a man of great power. And because of this, he was hated by the people that he was supposed to serve because he was disrespecting and abusing those people. Now imagine the corrupt politician or dishonest business person in our time today who's lining their pockets at other people's expenses. Then imagine those same people collaborating with the world's most dangerous terrorist organization. That is how the Jews of Jesus day thought of the Romans and those who collaborated with them, people like Zacchaeus. The Romans were brutal oppressors. They gained and held their power by acts of terror. And they hated men like Zacchaeus, both for their greed and for their relationship with that terrorizing enemy. The Jews did not like tax collectors. Now look with me if you would, beginning there in verse 3. Here's what it says again. Let me read it for us. And he, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. So Zacchaeus, wanting to see Jesus, and because of his stature, climbs into a tree. And he climbs into the tree really for two reasons. He's eager to see who Jesus was, and he was short. And he needed a place where he could see Jesus, even though he was small of stature. And here's what I want you to notice. He was so intent on seeing Jesus that he obviously wasn't interested in preserving his dignity. Here's what I mean. This very wealthy very powerful man in front of a crowd of people that would have hated him is climbing up into a tree to see Jesus. Now look with me at verse 5. This is where we see Jesus connect with Zacchaeus. Let me just read that for us again too. Look there. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. Notice that Jesus knows Zacchaeus by name. Now Jesus, for sure, fully God, fully omniscient. He knows everybody's name. But that, don't, don't think that. I mean, that's true. It's no less than that. But, but here's why this is significant. Even though Jesus had not met Zacchaeus personally before this, he goes to him, makes a, a line to Zacchaeus, and out of all the other people in Jericho at that time, he comes to this man, and he knows him. Right? If you know somebody's name, you know them. And listen, this is important because Jesus sees us. He sees our hearts. He knew that Zacchaeus desired to know who he was, so Jesus takes the initiative, he moves towards Zacchaeus, and he reaches out to Zacchaeus. He sees a searching heart. He doesn't wait for Zacchaeus necessarily to come to him. He initiates. He goes to Zacchaeus first. Really, that's the, the first thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. As we're thinking about what it means for you and I to be on mission, I want us to learn from Jesus tonight. 
Because the first thing that we see here tonight, it's a principle that we see that, that Jesus is uh, modeling for us, is that engaging in mission requires courageous initiative. I want you to, again, look what's happening here. Zacchaeus was a social outcast, right? But more importantly, he was a moral outcast. Someone far from God and most people around him would have thought no chance for Jesus to give a flip about him. We will learn from Jesus here how necessary it is for us to be moved by the Spirit of God to take initiative with those that may be far from God, especially those who may be considered outcasts or marginalized or looked down upon socially or economically or culturally or racially or morally. And if you and I were to be honest in our relationships, we don't think that way, right? We, we, we should be glad to take the first step in meeting someone where they're at, but we don't. We don't go looking for Jesus or Jesus doesn't come looking for us because that would require courage, right? Engaging in mission requires courageous initiative. Jesus in our story tonight knows that no one truly seeks him on their own and that instead Jesus comes looking for us. And so when you have been found by Jesus... As you think about the mission that God has given you, we pursue others the same way that Jesus has pursued us with courageous initiative. Now look with me back at verse 5 again. There's something else we need to grab in that verse. Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. and He tells him to come down from the tree and then says what? Look there. He says, I must stay at your home. And then verse 6, he says this. So, or the writer says this, Luke, so he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, the crowd, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. One of the most amazing parts of this encounter that we're looking at tonight is that Jesus invites himself into the home of Jesus excuse me, in the home of Zacchaeus. Now, you might say, now, Brad, I I understand being bold and courageous in evangelism and in mission, but are are you saying the principle here is we're supposed to go around inviting ourselves into people's homes, right? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I don't think that's what the principle is here. But I do think we need to ask ourselves what is going on here. What is the principle? What is, what is Jesus trying to show us? Again, we said before that Zacchaeus would not and could not have had any good relationships with any Jewish people, right? And so in this particular instance, he likely would have not felt like he had the freedom, ability to invite a Jew like Jesus, especially a Jewish religious leader like Jesus into his home because No self-respecting Jew, and certainly not a rabbi, in that day would have accepted the invitation from a tax collector. But because Zacchaeus cannot invite Jesus into his home, Jesus does something very counterintuitive here and invites himself. There was nothing more honoring or dignifying than to be invited into someone's 
home. And because Jesus knew that Zacchaeus couldn't do that with him, he does it for Zacchaeus. It's actually a really gracious thing. Now, I want you, though, to notice the reaction of the people in the crowd in verse 7. It's not just the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are criticizing Jesus here in our story, but in that crowd would have been everyone else too, other Jewish people. And here's what they say in verse 7 again. Look there. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And what you need to know about being the guest of someone in their home at this time in human history was something that was called table fellowship. And what table fellowship meant was that you are welcoming people into an extended, intimate time of personal connection with them over a meal. And really what it, it, it was supposed to be about was we are becoming friends. We're not just hanging out, but we're getting together over a meal, this extended time of connection with one another. And, and the, the end goal or what we're hoping to pursue as we're together is real friendship. So to be invited into Zacchaeus' home, for Jesus to invite himself into Zacchaeus' home was Jesus' way of saying, Zacchaeus, I want to be your friend. Now, the people in the crowd had no understanding of this. They looked at Zacchaeus and thought, Zacchaeus has this unclean profession, so if Jesus goes into the home of someone who has an unclean profession, he's going to become unclean. But don't miss this. Jesus is setting aside all of that. Because it wasn't God's law to think that way. Let me tell you what I mean. The laws of the Bible, and this time in particular, were designed to create or maintain religious separation and purity. But the laws that were being created many times on top of God's law prevented God's people from being obedient to Jesus' command to practice hospitality to strangers because they were adding things on to the law that prevented them from being able to even get close to those who were far from God. This was a moment that Jesus is undoing that understanding. He is, in this moment, teaching through his words and his actions that sometimes in mission we must name the unnecessary barriers that are many times erected in the name of religion. And that those barriers, if we keep them there, ultimately going to keep us away from engaging with those who are far, far from God. And here's the tragedy. When that happens, it communicates to them that they aren't worthy of the same grace that you and I have received, but, com but, but we've received completely unearned. Now, the mission principle here is this. It's not necessarily to invite yourself into people's houses. It's, it's the second thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. Engaging in mission requires proper dignity. Now, we've got to do a little bit of work here because this idea is one that it, it, we, can, we have a tendency to fall in, in one of two ditches. And one is to affirm sin so much in, in the name of, 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 of proper dignity that, that we uh, confuse the gospel message with folks. The other is to only focus on the issue of sin and, and never get to grace. 
And Jesus is doing neither of those things in our story. See, we are like the grumblers in this story. We see those around us with misplaced worship like Paul saw in his ministry as he walked through the cities that he was ministering in and saw the idol worship. We're like that, but when we see that many times, instead of our hearts breaking for their lostness, we think, oh, they don't deserve God's grace. Look how much they've messed up and they've outrun God's grace. Plus, like the investment of time that, that's going to really, it's going to cost me, honestly. It's just too much time. It's too much work. If they're choosing to live apart from God, let them have their way. But the action of Jesus going into the sinner's home should cause us, I think, to slow down a little bit tonight and think about the way that Jesus relates to sinners in the way that you and I should as well. If Jesus had conformed to what the grumblers wanted, he would have ignored Zacchaeus. Someone who was far from God and, and Jesus would have went, you know, I'm going to invest my time in, in something else. The murmurer's standards at this time was you didn't engage with people like Zacchaeus. But Jesus did the opposite. Why? Let's think about it this way. There are, of course, people around us who are far from the Lord, right? They may be engaging in sin. that They may even be proud of it. And we mistakenly assume that even though the scriptures require us to acknowledge that such people bears God's image, we still might despise them for that sin and keep ourselves apart from them because of it. But Jesus is teaching us here that it's precisely because they're far from God, we are to look on them with mercy and gentleness. Here's, here's the test. What group of people a person in your life makes you really angry because of how they live. In other words, like because of what they might struggle with or be sinning in. It's that person that I think the Lord wants to press this into. What does it look like for us to see those people the way that Jesus sees them? They're in need of forgiveness. His seeking and saving that, that Jesus is talking about here in our passage, they need that. And God intends to use us to be a part of that seeking and saving. So this may mean that, yes, you have to speak the truth in love to them. It's unloving to not tell them about the gap that exists between their sin and, and, and God's grace. But here we see Jesus dignifying and recognizing the image of God in someone who was hated, who was despised, who was overlooked and marginalized in society. Jesus is not, don't miss this, in our story, minimizing the reality of sin in Zacchaeus' life. We're actually going to see here in a moment that the, the way that Zacchaeus responds to Jesus shows us that Zacchaeus recognizes that he is a sinner. In other words, there is nothing in this story where you could say Jesus is affirming sin, and neither should we. But we're talking to someone who is far from God, right? Not expect them to act like a believer. And so our God-given role in that relationship is to the best of our ability to truthfully and lovingly give them hope 
that Jesus is better. Our God-given role in that relationship is to give people a sense of their own worth and value in the sight of God by showing them how Jesus is better. So it is, it's always truth and love or truth in love. And we need to ask ourselves as we're engaged with those who are far from God, where do I see even the slightest evidence of a seeking heart? Where do I see any slight response even to the enjoyment of God's gifts of, of common grace? How can I point that person to the truth that Jesus is better than the thing that they're choosing in their life? The only way, friends, that you and I can do that is if we're engaging in mission with others and giving them proper dignity. Now, let's look at the last part of our passage beginning there in verse 8. Let's read that again. Here's what it says. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. And we didn't read this earlier, but this is the, the next verse. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What a turn of events, right? Jesus treats Zacchaeus with such grace and honor in going to his house. And I think that this is assumed in our story and sharing the gospel with Zacchaeus with his words that it leads Zacchaeus to repentance. Now, don't misread this verse, okay? The Apostle Luke, the writer here, is not saying that because Zacchaeus makes this beautiful proposition to give half of the good to the poor and to pay back to those he's defrauded fourfold, that, that Jesus, because of that, saves him. That is never how salvation works. It isn't earned. It is received. But listen... This is important. Jesus is simply making a statement that the only way anyone would want to do what Zacchaeus is doing here is because they're already saved. They have already been converted. Zacchaeus's repentance here that we see is because it's on the other side of his salvation. Jesus is merely making a statement about Zacchaeus's present reality. This is how someone who is saved acts. And that's the point that Luke records, or that's the reason that Luke records all of this, honestly. Zacchaeus is so deeply moved by the grace of Jesus that he cho has chosen to regard his defrauding as the worst kind of stealing, so he'll pay it back four times originally what it was. The deep sense of sin that Zacchaeus now has as he is confronted with where his life has led him and now his desire for full repentance is what always takes place in a heart that's met Jesus. So don't miss this. When a person sees Jesus as he truly is, that person also sees themselves as they truly are. A clear vision of the seriousness of their sin is what Zacchaeus has in view. He, he has a clear-eyed view of how far he's fallen from the glory of God. And this clear sight of his sin, though, leads to a 
passionate desire to make amends and do what is right and pleasing in the eyes of the Lord because that is what saved people do. Now look with me, go to verse 10. Here's what it says again. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. How do you seek the lost? By separating yourself from them? No, by going to them. By being around them. By engaging with them. By bringing them dignity. And and here we see Jesus showing us that it was these things that somehow exhibited grace to Zacchaeus. But there's something else in this story that is assumed that we can't overlook. And it's the third thing I want you to see this evening. Engaging in mission requires gospel witness and gospel truth. We know that for anyone to come to know Jesus personally, to place their faith and trust in him, they have to understand the gospel. What's beautiful about the gospel is that it's simple enough for me, a five-year-old, to understand and accept. But it's so profound, it's this diamond that has all these facets, it's something that we'll spend a lifetime and an eternity understanding. So we're not talking about uh, some sort of fully-fledged theological understanding of everything that you could possibly know on this side of eternity about the gospel. What, what we're saying here, to know Jesus personally, you have to understand, you have to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. For Zacchaeus to come to a place of repentance in our story today, it's more than just Jesus' actions that wooed him. To be reconciled to Jesus, it was the words of, of Jesus about himself, I believe, the good news of the gospel that brought Zacchaeus to a place of repentance. It was a both and. It was the life and the words of Jesus. See, Jesus didn't come in the world to keep himself apart from sinners. He came to fulfill the promise God made in Ezekiel 34 when he said, I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. And this meant that as Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, seeking the lost, his frontline approach was to, yes, live out the gospel, to exhibit it, to show it, but to also proclaim it. We've probably said this here before. There's a quote that's attributed to a, a saint that, that goes like this, preach at all times and if necessary, use words. That is not what Jesus is showing us here in our story. He's saying, preach at all times and use words. Preach with your life, but preach with your words. Jesus leads with love, but he also follows that love up with truth. And we should too. So we really have to ask ourselves really both questions. What do our actions and our words say about Jesus? Do they tell the truth about who Jesus is? What does grace really look like and sound like in our relationships with others? Again, grace never minimizes sin. Grace never approves of sin. Grace isn't grace without the very real recognition of sin. But grace is the antidote to sin. Author Randy Alcorn says it this way, Grace doesn't minimize or ignore the awful reality of our sin. Grace emphasizes the depths of sin by virtue of the unthinkable price paid to redeem us from it. 
Paul said, if men were good enough, then Christ died for no purpose. If we don't come to grips with the hideous reality of our own sin, God's grace won't ever seem amazing. In other words, you can't have the good news of the gospel without the bad news of sin. It's, it's a both and. And Jesus, I believe in our story, shows us that it's both in deed and in word that someone can interact with the gospel as we are interacting with them. Mission always involves gospel witness and truth. Let's end here. Why is it that you and I so often lack the courage that we need to engage in mission the way that Jesus did? Well, there are a lot of things that I think we could say, but for the sake of time tonight, I think one of the main reasons is this. We look at a story like Jesus and Zacchaeus and we stop at Jesus just being a good example to us. We end with this message. I could end it right now and just say, be like Jesus. And while Jesus is the ultimate example and ultimate model for us in our Christian life, if we stop there, we stop short of all that we need in the mission. And let me tell you what I mean. We have to, in order to engage in this mission that God has given us, go beyond or in addition to this idea of Jesus being an example, we have to see Jesus as our Savior. We have to remember that Jesus is our Savior. I think if we could get that one truth massaged down into our spirits, I, I, I believe in my own life and in our lives, mission would take on a life of its own. And what I mean is this, if you and I aren't regularly revisiting the courage and the boldness that Jesus had in showing, uh, coming to us and showing us his love by pursuing us and saving us, we will find frustration in mission. How quickly we forget how we met Jesus. We were morally dirty. We were spiritually unclean. We needed to be washed. We were thieves like Zacchaeus. We stole God's glory for our own to make much of ourselves. But Jesus set aside his moral and religious outrage, not counting our sins against us, but against himself. And he came to seek us and to save us because we were lost at one time. So why should we welcome sinners and unbelievers into our lives? Because every day, every moment of your life, Jesus is coming to you in your rebellion, in your moral failures, in your lack of love, your reluctance to honor him. And even though we have cold hearts, every day he asks us to welcome him into our lives and into our homes. Every day he says to us, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him. What grace. Jesus wants to come into the home of your heart and eat with you. Don't you see that in our story tonight? Fellowship with sinners is the gospel. It is in the gospel that God both tells us the truth about who we are, but he gives us a way out and into his fellowship. For those of you here that are Christians tonight, that's probably most of us, we all know that we lack courage. 
But here's the good news. The same way that Zacchaeus repents here in our story is the same way that you and I can repent of our courage in mission. Remember, a deep sense of our sin and desire for full repentance is what takes place in the heart when a person meets Jesus. So really the question for everybody here tonight is this, have you met Jesus? Because when a person truly sees Jesus as he truly is, that person also sees themselves with a clear vision of their sin, but they also see that the answer to their brokenness is found in the unconditional love and forgiveness of God. Friends, that is what can fuel our mission in life. Yes, look to Jesus as your example and as your model. But be compelled by Jesus because of the grace that you have received to share the gospel story of how Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer to those around you. Because he is better for you, for me, and for everyone. Let's pray together.